0: This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please
1: visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.
0: So I'm Ted Martin. I'm the Executive Director of Equality Pennsylvania. We're the statewide LGBT political advocacy organization. Thank you for having me. These are always uh, moments I enjoy. Uh, I like coming out and speaking, and it's uh, always uh, important to come out and talk about the issues that your state government is working on. Uh, my role at Equality Pennsylvania, along with our staff, is really to work on state legislation. Uh, our role is to work throughout Pennsylvania to educate the public, as well as work in Harrisburg to educate legislators on issues that impact the LGBT community. You know, I was on a panel uh, earlier this week, actually on Monday. Uh, I was on a panel uh, that was sponsored by the uh, Office of the Victims Advocate uh, in Harrisburg um, on violence uh, against various communities. And they talked about uh, what providers who were in the room could do uh, essentially to help the LGBT community. And the sad fact of the matter is what I had to tell them was much of the cultural things that they can do, much of the cultural sensitivity, making sure that forms are correctly written, uh, being welcoming, understanding the LGBT community. But what I couldn't tell them was that there was any recourse to the law. Because in Pennsylvania, LGBT people are not specifically protected in any kind of uh, uh, violence or or uh, hate crimes laws. It's also the only state in Northeast where you can still fire someone for being gay. You can evict someone uh, for being gay. You can deny them a public accommodation. So the sheer thought of talking about this type of violence, which usually prompts a reaction, as seen here in the room, but also prompted the Judiciary Committee uh, of the House to actually pass a piece of legislation uh, that would address the issue of uh, of LGBT violence uh, is pretty remarkable, but pretty typical, but pretty typical in Harrisburg. We do a lot of work educating legislators about the LGBT community. We do a lot of work letting them know that LGBT people are everywhere, that issues impact them on a, on a daily basis, especially violence. We all know that the, the, the incident that happened in Philadelphia was horrifically violent. It was, it was just horrible. And that prompted legislators and many Republicans stand up and say that this has got to stop and that's an important step in the right direction it's an important step in the right direction the unfortunate thing is that they voted the session ended very quickly thereafter the holidays happened and not many people have said much about it since. not many people in the legislature have said much about it and so what I'm saying here today is what we do and what you all need to do is talk to legislators talk to your elected officials repeatedly not just once but repeatedly. As I often like to say, you're paying for them. So my suggestion is you get what you're paying for. And you need to talk to them. And I know many of you colleges, and you know, colleges, people spread all over the place. But for Pennsylvanians, what I say is that you need to figure out who these people are and talk to them regularly, about the lives and the value of LGBT people. Legislators always used to say to me, I never hear from the LGBT community. There are no gay people in my district. People actually said that to me. There are no gay people in my district. And that, they can't say any longer. That they can't say any longer because not only are LGBT people speaking out, but you all know people. All the allies in this room can talk. And they all know people, too. And so the tide is changing. But realize that Pennsylvania has a lot of work to do. No LGBT-specific hate crime protections. No LGBT-specific bullying protections still be fired. There is a long way to go. The world is shifting very fast, and I think the world will continue to shift very fast but there's still a lot of work to do. And that's what we do, and that's what Equality Pennsylvania does with your help and the help of our staff uh, and the help of volunteers throughout. So thank you very much, uh, and I'm happy to answer questions as well.
1: So I guess we're standing up here just fine. Uh, my name is Tobias Wolf. I'm a professor at Penn Law School. And they asked me, I guess, to talk a little bit about the law. So I'll spend a little bit of my time doing that. Uh, And let me talk a bit about what hate crimes laws are, because there's sometimes a bit of confusion about that. Hate crimes laws generally take the form of penalty enhancements. And they are laws that operate in conjunction with other criminal statutes to prohibit things like uh, violent assaults, murder, uh, property, damage, arson, and so forth. And they say that... Uh, When you commit a crime of violence against another person or against property, and you do it targeting the the, uh, victim of your crime because of their race or because of their religion or, in some places, because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity, that you can be prosecuted for the underlying offense, but that the harm that you're doing is uh, has an additional component to it, which is that you're harming not just the individual, but you're doing a harm to a community. And the idea, the fundamental idea behind a hate crime law, is that they're terrorizing in nature, and that they're meant to be terrorizing, and that they have the effect of terrorizing not just the individuals who are targeted for violent behavior, but the communities that they identify with, and the communities that they're a part of. And indeed, in a deeper sense, if we want to sort of engage in university speak, uh, these are laws that recognize that violence can be a tool for social control and for social subordination. And they aim to acknowledge that fact and to create enhanced penalties for acts of violence that are motivated by this kind of uh, targeted bias. What hate crimes laws aren't is speech crime laws. right? And so one of the other debates we've had at various points in the United States is about hate speech and about simply using really ugly speech or using personal uh, insults or invective, directed at people based upon their identities, uh, their gender, or their race, and asking, well, should that be a crime? Should we be able to actually restrict people's speech when they're engaged in, in this kind of ugly, racist, or homophobic, or transphobic speech? And the Supreme Court has said the answer to that question is no, that making people's speech illegal simply because it has ugly, racist, or homophobic sentiments is a violation of the First Amendment. I think they were quite correct in saying that. This is not laws that seek to punish people for their speech. It's just laws that seek to punish people for violent crimes and for uh, destructive property crimes. But they recognize that certain motivations that people have are more injurious. And the law does that all the time, right? You get a higher penalty for uh, intentional murder than you do for reckless manslaughter, for example. And hate crimes laws are laws that say there are some kinds of motivations where the, the violence or the property damage is targeted at a community or at a member of a community because of their identity that do additional and and qualitatively distinct harms, And so the law should recognize that and penalize accordingly. So that's what these statutes are all about. There's federal hate crimes law, uh, which is available in some limited circumstances, generally speaking, when states or municipalities show themselves, well, states show themselves unwilling to or unable (coughs) to provide an appropriate remedy when violent crime happens. Federal hate crimes prosecutions are really quite rare. Uh, There are state-level hate crime laws. Pennsylvania has a state hate crime law, which currently prohibits uh, bias-motivated violence based upon race or ethnicity or uh, religion or one more category, national origin, I think. Uh, Doesn't cover sex or gender. Doesn't cover disability. Doesn't cover sexual orientation or gender identity. And some of the the legislation that's currently pending in the Pennsylvania uh, legislature to include sexual orientation and gender identity would also include mental and physical disability um, and sex and gender as categories where the bias associated with an attack is a particularly injurious harm. Okay, so that's kind of the, what the laws are about that we're debating here. So, the second observation that I'll make is um, about, you know, what What is the nature of this judgment that we make when we enact these hate crimes laws that says that this is doing a distinctive harm to either the individual or to a community? And I think part of that judgment has to do with a very deep fact about discrimination, a very deep fact about the way that we regard each other as human beings who are entitled to being Uh, accorded dignity, entitled to be accorded uh, the regard of moral obligation. And with the exception of the rare, or however rare uh, people are who are born sociopaths and don't have this sense of moral obligation towards each other, um, I think, and I think there's a lot of psychological research to suggest, that our natural tendency towards other humans is to approach each other with a sense of regard, with a sense of moral obligation that we we view each other as moral agents and that we should treat each other as moral agents. And the circumstances in which people can be led to treat each other without that sense of regard, without that sense of moral obligation, I think have a lot to do with ideology. I think that part of the function of some ideologies is to teach and then reinforce a message that some communities of people are simply not entitled to the same regard, to the same treatment, to the same human dignity as others. Those ideologies, I think, are very dangerous. Now, in this country, we don't make ideologies illegal. And we don't make it illegal to foster ideologies, even if they have very dehumanizing qualities to them. And once again, I think that's an important commitment on the free speech side. But we can recognize that certain targeted acts of violence have the effect (coughs) not only of terrorizing the community in the abstract, but also making that community much more vulnerable to violence going forward. Because it reinforces a sense that this is a community of people who are not entitled to the same kind of dignified treatment, the same kind of basic human rights as other communities. And I think part of what hate crimes laws uh, aim to do is to both express and also embody that principle that we protect ideological beliefs in this country, but when those ideological beliefs lead people to target communities for violence, it doesn't just represent a terrorizing, isolated act. It represents a reinforcing of the notion that this is a community that is simply not entitled to the same kind of human rights treatment as other communities are. And I think it's right for the law to take a stand against that kind of community-based violence. And so I think that it is, in fact, an important conversation to have about the expansion of Pennsylvania's state crime laws to include the same range of communities that the federal law does, and that a growing number of state laws do as well. Um so I'll stop there and uh welcome your questions when we're all done. Thank you. Hi, oh sure. Thank you. There's one there
2: too last, last, yeah. Thanks. i am break the pair on and Stacy today. I hope you can see me on. Um I'm speaking here not as a representative of the Catholic Church. It's always a somewhat uncomfortable situation to talk about homosexuality in the Catholic Church, as I'm sure you are aware. So I'm speaking as a theologian who's not out neither to defend the church nor to attack it. But my task as a theologian is to look critically at what's happening within the church and in society that might hinder people from living their lives fully, from flourishing. And I think homosexuality is one of those issues that needs being looked at. Um, Where it's quite obviously, I think, that the official stance of the church has an impact on individuals, how they live their sexual orientation and their faith, but also on society more and large. It's, I think, dangerous to think that the church is a kind of that's closed in itself and doesn't have interactions with wider society. But what's happening in the church, the kind of views that are um, proposed and promoted do influence how people, even non-Catholics, think about certain issues. And you just have to look at the news and, you know, how often issues on homosexuality and religion come up to uh, see that that's quite true. So I really want to talk about three points here. I want to talk about how anti-gay violence happens in the church. I want to talk about how uh, the official discourse in the church might um, give right, right, I'm German, sometimes I have problems with English. Give rise to, um, to anti-gay violence. And then I also want to briefly talk about possible ways forward and how things might change. So first, um, violence within violence against gays within the church. Now today, neither church, official church doctrine, nor theology call for or defend violence against gays. There hasn't been anybody burned on the stake recently. But there are other forms of violence, non-physical violence. And I think uh, two in particular are present within the church. And one is the issue of language, and maybe my German background makes me less lenient with regard to free speech there. And the other issue is exclusion from community. By denying access to sacraments, uh, matters of employment where uh, out gays might not be uh, not get employment from a Catholic employer, uh, and exclusion from ordination for gay men. And to just focus on language for a little bit, um, the official language that's used in Vatican documents describes homosexuality as a tendency towards, quote, an intrinsic moral evil and thus, quote, an objective disorder. That's from the 1986 uh, letter on pastoral care of homosexual persons, the so-called Halloween letter that you might have heard of. Um, Homosexual couples, it is said, uh, don't have the possibility for genuine affection, personal love, and fruitfulness simply because they are not a complementary couple heterosexual couple. I think that's a kind of language that's very violent because it assumes power of definition, of identity, over how somebody defines their orientation, their forms to live relationship, um, their identity as homosexual and Catholic at the same time. Um, It's a language of exclusion and of othering. Those are the ones that can't. We are the ones that can't, supposedly. What's also noticeable is uh, in a more recent publication from the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, that's the kind of, uh, you know, the successor of the Inquisition who did burn people on the um, That on the one hand, there is a call for acceptance, for respect, for sensitivity towards homosexual persons. There's a clear um, condemnation of discrimination against gays in that text. But then just a couple of lines later, they continue to talk about. Uh, intrinsic evil and uh, disorder and uh, describe homosexual relationships as harmful to society. So I think that's uh, something that's not quite right and that uh, contradictoriness between a very severe condemnation of homosexuality as a tendency, as an orientation, but yet the acceptance of homosexual persons you know, the motto of uh, hate the sin and love the sinner as if identity and agency could be split in a person somehow. That contradictions uh, create a kind of cognitive dissonance as Stephen McKinley has called it, that uh, for homosexual persons can be experienced as violence, as as painful. But I think it could also be, uh, it could give rise to violence, it could be taken as a (coughs) kind of permission uh, to be violent against homosexuals, because after all, homosexuality is an intrinsic evil. So this unclarity, this contradiction between condemnation on the one hand, and yet acceptance on the other, I think is a a kind of a, a gap or opens up a dynamics that can be potentially lead to violence, because there's no clear statement out there. And that contradictoriness does not just happen within official documents of the church, but it can also be noticed between the level of official statements and what's actually happening on the level of parishes, pastoral care, um, where there are parishes, there are priests that are very welcoming towards homosexual persons, include them within their parishes whether they live their homosexuality or live chastity, whatever. Um, There's the uh, the VU Pride at a Catholic university. There's, um, I know of um, (coughs) the associations of women's orders in the US that have regular retreats and workshops for lesbian nuns, for example, where they can talk about uh, what sexual orientation means in relationship to vocation, to faith, and so on. So on the level of pastoral care, of ministry, there is this acceptance of homosexual persons that then clashes with that official condemnation of homosexuality yet again. And I think that clash uh, on the one hand can be experienced as somewhat liberating because at least I know that not the whole church in all of its realizations is anti-gay. There are those parishes that will welcome me. On the other hand, I'm never quite sure what to expect. If I move to a new parish, well, is the priest there? Is he going to be, you know, towing the Vatican line? Is he more open minded? Should I be out to my employer? You know, it's, it's an anxiety, it's an uncertainty that stresses people as well. So to briefly talk about potential ways forward, I think the way forward lies precisely in that plurality of attitudes. The Catholic Church is not just a block. It's not one opinion. It consists of various levels. There's the Vatican level with all its problems. Um, there's the level of theology that's very often very critical, that has put forward a number of good arguments uh, for homosexual relationships as a form of living human relationality that has invalidated a lot of all those old arguments uh, arguments against homosexuality, especially the biblical ones, which with contemporary biblical interpretation have just shown to not hold up. And then there's the level of the of the church as the body of Christ, as the people of God, which is basically what we all are every day. That lives again very different attitudes. And there's a theological concept that maybe Vatican people should take into my, into account a little bit. That's called sensus fidelium, the sense of the faithful, the opinion of the faithful, which is actually considered a very important source of doctrine if doctrine is only imposed from above, but doesn't find an echo on the base, for example, in in the community of the faithful, it's not actually valid doctrine. Now, with regard to homosexuality, it's quite clear that there's a gap between what comes from above and what's lived from below. So taking this concept of uh, the sense of the faithful seriously um, could maybe help to move things forward so that the church as a whole, in all its various realizations, will potentially, hopefully, eventually, <laughs> become a place where everybody, with their various gifts with which they have been created, uh, is welcome, and that in at that point, the church can become a model for a more open, welcoming society. Now, we all know that in the eyes of the Lord, thousand years are just one day, so it'll take a little <laughs> while, <laughs> but I am hopeful that things might be changing, um, not just in language, but also in substance. Thank you.
3: Hi everyone, my name is Mike Hoffman. I'm a junior at Villanova at Carson Table. I'm gay and I'm largely out here, so um, Professor Hodges asked me to speak about my experiences on campus and also my experiences of the student reaction to the gay bashing that was mentioned earlier. Um, by and large, in my friend group, I was usually the one to bring it up. Most people hadn't heard about it or if they had heard, it was kind of brushed off as just another, you know, bad things happening in the news. It happened and it was easily and quickly forgotten. Um, most of the campus, in my opinion, just did not know about it and did not hear about it. And for people that did, Again, it was easily brushed off and quickly forgotten. So, just to reiterate why this is a big issue, this is something that, in my experience, people tend to believe that violence against the LGBTQ, the LGBTQ community tends not to be something that is brought up often, at least on this campus. And if it is, it's something that is seen as happening elsewhere, very far away. That's something that happens in the South, in other countries, in Russia, in Uganda. Places that are very well publicized and well known for being hostile and traditional. What we don't expect is for it to happen in our own backyard in Philadelphia, in a city that is traditionally liberal and the city of brotherhood love. What happened on September 11th, in 2014 was that Zachary Hessey and his boyfriend, t- age 28 and 27, were walking to get frozen yogurt and pizza and they were assaulted by a group of over 20 Catholic students and Catholic graduate students and teachers and coaches from Bucks County. Three of them are facing criminal charges, but Zachary and his boyfriend were held down and kicked, punched, and they were uh, subjected to slurs and an extreme case of violence. This is not the norm, but the fact that this happened and there wasn't a wider student protest or even student discussions about it is what's disturbing. As a Catholic campus and like as a Catholic university, we need to realize that these were Catholics that committed this crime. And while most Catholics would never do such a thing and would be morally opposed and take very strong stances against it, most Catholics on this campus and overall have let this crime be forgotten and are not talking about it. So I'm asking you, as Catholics, as members of the Augustinian University, to have more thought about this, to examine your own lives and your own actions and your own friends, and to start discussions about this and start asking if there's anything you can do. Because violence like this is happening and it makes me very afraid. Right now, I'm very afraid to speak about this, but I am. Because if we don't speak and we don't have a conversation, no one will. And it's, again, forgotten. And these kind of of crimes continue to happen across the nation and across the world. So we need to take a stand to end this and open up a discussion and really become a university that values love and bring that love to the world. On campus, I'm proud to say that as an out student this year, I came out at the end of this year to so the majority of my friends, and I can happily say that it has been a very pleasant experience for me.
2: It's been much more positive than I expected, which is all kudos to the university and the student body and the faculty that makes up the student community and the Villanova community at large.
3: However, there have been instances that I have felt threatened and unsafe. Typically, these happen at parties where people don't know I am out, but, and they don't know that I am gay. But I have left parties because there have been slurs that start getting thrown around and comments and very, it, it's chain reaction typically. Someone will say something, someone will follow up with a joke that quickly devolves into a smear campaign of the gay rights movements and LGBTQ population at large. As a member of that population, I find it very damaging and it is frightening because I know that if something were to happen, as Ted said earlier, there are very few recourses of law in Pennsylvania. And as someone who, if my parents knew, I would be homeless. I have next to no recourse besides the support and love of my friends. So I'm asking you to continue to keep Illinois a safe place and to continue to work to expand that safety and make it a university That really values the Augustine's of truth, unity, and love. Thank you.
4: not straight or do not identify that way because I have a privilege and I think that's something that is not something anyone should ever be ashamed of but I think it's really, really important for everyone to be aware of that and as Mike kind of spoke to you with regards to like the parties and party scene on campus, in situations like that I think that does at least from my perspective Villanova tend to be kind of the most controversial and iffy times because that's when people are most likely to be perhaps less restrained or perhaps under influences, and maybe not in the right or best mindset and best decision making capacities. And that's when I really see where I fit into this picture the most, is that I'm somebody who with that privilege of being straight can in my at least experience feel safe in speaking up if at all possible when people do drop slurs, saying something if people are making like questionable or inappropriate comments. And that's also not to say that I always would do so or that I would expect anyone else to feel comfortable doing so. Everybody has their own comfort levels. Everybody has to judge situations as they are. Um, Like this whole, um, the whole theme of this has been talking about um, like safety and violence. Certainly I would not want myself or anybody else who is straight to be subjected to violence for standing up for the community, even if they're not a direct member. That being said, I think that that's where the discretion comes in. So to talk more to that experience, there was an incident um, several months ago where somebody who's not even from this university uh, made a comment that was pretty inappropriate um, about the LGBT community. And when I said something, um, a lot of people in the room laughed. And that really bothered me. I had a lot of conversations with people about it after the fact. um, And we kind of all reached a mutual understanding about what had happened. But really what I took away from that was that sometimes there really just unfortunately are situations where you can't necessarily stop what's going on. And I think it really is hard to realize that and to accept that. Uh, But realistically, there are some times and some places when you speaking up is not necessarily going to be productive or effective, especially if people are at, you know, this classic party scene where people are inebriated, that's really not, at least in my view, the best time and place to try and have a like a Sophisticated conversation about uh, proper language usage. Um, but I do still think there's something that I and that hopefully most people can and would feel comfortable doing straight or not, but again from my perspective as straight, that even if I can't necessarily have an extenuated conversation, A, just to try and make the situation lighter, to say something that takes the power away from whatever comment was made, if at all possible, that's something that even though maybe you're not getting to the heart of the problem, you're still doing something actively to voice your disapproval of what they're doing and to show support whether somebody in the room is, identifies as LGBT or not. The other thing, and I think this might be the more important one for my take, is if you do know that somebody, whether it's a friend or not, in that room does identify that way and may or may not be hurt or afraid or scared or threatened by whatever was just said or done, that my priority in that kind of situation would always be to make sure, if at all possible, in any way possible, that they're safe. Whether that means something like texting them and saying, like, let's just get out of here and dropping some kind of excuse, like, you do what you have to. So to kind of switch over that to, like, the reaction that I noticed from, again, my perspective on campus with student reaction to what happened in Philadelphia, Um, The thing I found most interesting was that people didn't necessarily translate what happened in Philadelphia to what they could necessarily do at Villanova. And again, fortunately, as Mike spoke to, this has been a traditionally safe campus. I certainly encourage all of you to keep that continued and to improve it every day as much as possible. But I think that we can take instances like that and learn from them and say, well, okay, you know, God forbid something even remotely like that happened on campus. What would I do? Because I think that. Um, Again, whether you're straight, gay, lesbian, whatever, however you identify, that it's important to think in advance, what would I do in a situation like that to protect myself and those around me who might be threatened? Um, Because I think that that's the most active thing that a lot of us can do besides, obviously, in advance, having discourse about it. Um, And the other thing that I found interesting is a big takeaway that I noticed was um, when we had for students who were on semester campus last semester, there was a student-led protest by um, the Oreo regarding Ferguson, Eric Garner, those instances, which personally I at least fully applaud and really glad to have seen that happen. I did, however, find it interesting that there was never even discussion of having anything remotely similar on this campus or any other campus across the nation, as far as I'm aware at least, when instances like that do happen, like the one in Philadelphia that we're speaking of. Um, And that's something that i really don't have an answer to maybe it's because of the way the media reacted maybe it's because of the way it was played out there's a lot of different things that go into that i don't mean to suggest at all that they're the same situation but at the same time in this time of social media and facebook trends and all these great things that can help things catch on fire why it didn't catch on fire the same way so that's something i'd really like to challenge all of you to think about is why didn't it catch on fire the same way was it just a fluke or is this something that kind of shows maybe underlying tendencies to perhaps brush things like this under the rug to an extent Um, to kind of uh, re-echo what mike said i would agree that overall there wasn't a whole lot of discussion about um, this instance on campus Um, and again there could be a lot of reasons for that i certainly don't have the answer i doubt many of you do either but um, I do think it's something important to think about, especially considering other instances that we are paying attention to. And just to question, well, why is it that we're not paying attention? Because I would hope that everyone out here can agree that however you identify and whatever your views are, I think that everybody deserves safety and everybody deserves respect. And that um, that applies both on this campus, in this city, and throughout the country. And so I would say my big takeaway would be my challenge to you is to think about what you can do to make sure yourself and others are safe in situations that might tend to escalate. And then to also consider why things maybe have not been discussed more um, thoroughly on this topic, uh, the way that some of the other like current issues have been. Thank you. Well,
5: wow, wow. Thank you, panel. Um, great, great talks. Um, We're happy to
1: take questions. I'm a law professor, so I can call on people. If, <laughs> if, if that I was Go ahead. Yeah.
5: Um, you mentioned that there are there are different types of violence, and that even denying someone a job or housing because of their sexuality could be considered a, uh, a more like <coughs> yeah a, a certain type of violence or intimidation. So take into account what's happening in Indiana right now. So my understanding is that in Philadelphia. There are no laws that, because people like, protested a lot what, what's happening in Indiana, but in Philadelphia, like, that's permitted. Like, I, could, I could tell someone, if I had a, a business, I could tell someone that I will not do business with them because of their sexuality.
1: Sure. So uh, in the state of Pennsylvania, there are, the question, can everybody hear the question? Uh, yeah. So in the state of Pennsylvania, there are no statewide <coughs> laws that prohibit discrimination Based on sexual orientation or gender identity. So that means if you get fired from a job, uh, I mean, now that uh, same sex couples are able to get married in Pennsylvania because of the recent court rulings, if you're a same sex couple and you get married and you tell your employer that you're married now, for example, if you fill out uh, a form that says, I want spousal benefits now, you can be fired if it turns out that you've married somebody the same sex and your employer doesn't like the fact that you're gay. Uh, statewide, these protections don't exist. Some s- municipalities, some cities, have local ordinances that prohibit some kinds of discriminatory behavior, and Philadelphia is one of those uh, cities. And so in the city of Philadelphia, uh, it's illegal to, uh, for covered businesses to fire somebody because they're gay. And that's true in Pittsburgh, and it's true in 34 municipalities. Thank you, 34 municipalities. Uh, so there are a lot of pockets of coverage in. Phila- in, in Pennsylvania, but there's no statewide coverage in in Pennsylvania. Do you want to follow? Up? Sure. So, uh, you know, one of the one of the major
0: campaigns that we're moving forward is a is a non-discrimination campaign. It is it is the campaign that we're most uh, consumed with, and, and that would be to amend the Pennsylvania Human Relations Act to prohibit employment to prohibit discrimination uh, based on sexual orientation, gender identity, and expression in employment, housing, and public accommodations. So, to Tobias's point, in most seventy percent of the state, you can still be fired. So, you know, uh, for being gay or you know, denied public accommodation. And I explain it this way. You know, uh, we work with major companies uh, who mostly have policies. And uh, so Alcoa, which is based in Pittsburgh, a major corporation, came to us. And they said, you know, we're interested in supporting this effort. Can you tell me, uh, you know, where our, where our people are protected? And I said, well, where do you have facilities? And they said, we have three. We have one in Pittsburgh. And I said, oh, your, your employees there are protected. We have one in Butler County all your employees there aren't protected and we have one in Lancaster And I said Lancaster City or Lancaster County and they said well ironically half of it's in Lancaster County and half of it's in Lancaster City and I said well the people who work in the part of it that's covered in Lancaster City are covered and protected and the people who are uh, working in the part in Lancaster County are not meaning you can be fired in the workers cafeteria down the hall but safe in your office up the hall that's how crazy it is. That's how crazy it is in Pennsylvania. And to your point about Indiana, I mean, you know, uh, that was an attempt, a pretty naked attempt, to, uh, you know, really use some crazy language around deeply held faith beliefs, whatever those are. Now me define that, and they never did. Uh, to really deny, to allow people to be, you know, to, to discriminate, to discriminate in public accommodations, to say you can't eat. You know, mercifully, 16 minutes after that law was signed by Governor Pence, who I guarantee you're never going to see as President Pence, uh, which was his hope. Uh, 60 minutes after that, Angie's List pulled $40 million out of the, out of the state, 1,000 1, jobs. And that rips the heart out of any governor. And that's why it's a powerful story. And that's why it's impacting here. And that's why many people, including the mayor of Philadelphia, sort of stepped up and said, we, you know, we accept everybody. And a lot of people came very, very, very dramatically so that's really uh, the importance of Indiana, and that's really the importance of the, the campaign that we're really moving at.
1: Can I just add one quick word to that, or two quick words? Um, the state of Indiana does not have statewide anti-discrimination laws that cover LGBT folks either. There are, once again, a handful of counties and cities that do. But part of what was a little surreal about the debate in Indiana was that this RFRA, this the State Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Was enacted with, with a very different kind of language than we've seen in other such statutes. And the the whole advocacy effort behind it was centered around uh, these, these professional advocates saying, you know, you shouldn't have to take business from a gay couple if you provide, for example, wedding related services, if you're a, a caterer, or, or so forth. Um, and I'll just mention one of the cases that gets tossed around a lot and talked about is a case which some of you may have heard about uh, out of New Mexico, in which there was a wedding photography company that refused to take business from a lesbian couple. Uh, I was the lawyer who re- represented the lesbian couple, or more specifically, the woman named Vanessa Willock, who was um, told, we, we don't take business from lesbian couples. Thank you very much. And when my, when my client, Vanessa Willock, testified about the impact that it had on her, to be turned away from this business because she's a lesbian. Uh, What she said, in very powerful testimony, was it made me feel afraid to try to participate in the public marketplace. Because if I can be told in this blatant way, as she said, that you're just not welcome here, am I going to have that reaction every time I go to another business? Am I going to have that reaction every time I try to participate as a consumer? And the marketplace is the, is the place where you ought to be able to come and be treated as an equal, be treated as you know, somebody who's coming to engage in a commercial transaction. And the idea that discrimination is related to violence, uh, it's not just an academic point. Uh, it's about what kind of social messages we're sending. And you know a lot of folks who spend a lot of time advocating against gay couples being allowed to get married. And by the way, I always kind of assume that I have like a neon rainbow flag sort of over my head, but just in the interest of representing properly, I'm a gay man as well. I very much hope to get married when I meet the guy who's lucky enough to uh, <laughs> be that guy. Uh, and uh, you know, when, when you discriminate, um, it's not just a single isolated act. It's sending a message, and I started to say the folks who advocate uh, aggressively against gay couples being allowed to get married, they talk about social messages a lot. They talk about you know what kind of message is it going to send to straight couples about the institution of marriage, and suddenly straight couples are not going to value marriage in the same way, and straight couples are not going to want to get married anymore. Now, I've been doing this work a long time. I've never seen much evidence of that. And... I have yet to meet the mythical straight couple who is going to start thinking differently about their marriage if suddenly some gay couple down the street are able to get married as well. And if they do, right, if they do, they have to look inward a little bit about (laughs) what's going on in their marriage. (laughs) But when we're allowed to have these laws and policies that openly discriminate against folks, and when you have this major effort in Indiana to pass this super, super RIFRA law which wasn't even necessary to accomplish its putative goal because LGBT folks didn't have protection in Indiana in the first place, in most parts of Indiana. It was about sending a message that turning a gay person away from a business is an OK thing to do, that it has the imprimatur of the state, right? That, that we hereby place the, the approval of the state behind that idea. And that sends a message about how people are going to be treated in the community. And, and that, I think, I think it's not fanciful to say that that helps to create an atmosphere of violence. And that when when my client, Vanessa Willick, said, it made me afraid to go to the marketplace again. When I discovered that I could be told, or it turned out the New Mexico Supreme Court said she couldn't be told, but at the moment she felt like she could be told, we're not going to take business from your kind. You don't know what impact that has on your sense of, of citizenship and your sense of belonging in a community until it happens to you. And until somebody says to you, we don't take your kind here. And it's a chilling, chilling experience. And I really do think that it is related in some very concrete ways to vulnerability to violence. Other questions? In this, the
0: back.
6: In the back. No.
0: So uh, you know, I guess if we're confessing here. I'll be I'll be frank. Uh, you know, I was raised Catholic. This is a this is an interesting personal moment for me. Uh, and it usually is. Uh, you know, but I'll, I'll be. You know, um, I I think first of all, I, I guess I'll push back a little bit on lack of reaction. This room is packed right now. Legislators actually move legislation in, in Harrisburg. And I think to the point of, uh, you know, the fact that it was also an international story. I mean, it was an international story. That was a pretty enormous thing. Obviously, it didn't have the end result of passing a law. And obviously, it didn't have an end result of making people rise up, Catholic or otherwise. Uh, but little does. Little does, quite, quite sadly. But I think that, you know, to your point, people are still talking about this. Steve, people are still discussing uh, you know, this issue very much. And, you know, I I wrestle with the whole point of, uh, you know, with with talking a little bit deeper about Catholicism, but I also will say that the people that slow everything down in Harrisburg, the people that slow everything down in Harrisburg is the Catholic Conference. They're one of the most powerful forces to stop anything LGBT-related in Harrisburg. They spend about a million dollars a year. So, you know, they're not the only ones, but they're the most well-funded ones and so you know there is that ability i think to send a message and to talk about chilling i think there is the ability to chill legislators there is the ability to chill the public and there is the ability to chill the people that sit in the pews occasionally and so you know it is a it is a hard wrestle um, i think it is a hard wrestle uh, you know a <coughs> hard thing to wrestle with um, but i think once again to the point i originally made there are people in this room there are uh, this is a packed room and you're still talking about it And people still understand it and it has prompted people to move forward it's still in the papers and so you know the reason why indiana failed is because people rose up really rose up and they said this is nonsense this is nonsense clearly and so i think the days of of so much non-response are coming to an end on these issues but it's still going to take time it's still going to take time so a little all over the map but you know, I think uh, uh, you know. I think people are getting to a point where they're very willing to talk about these issues. Very willing to talk about these issues. But really, very
1: willing to push back pretty dramatically. Uh, I guess the only thing that I'll add, well, two things. First of all, um, I think that the the expert on the question of how and whether and the attack in Philadelphia is understood and known about on the kind of ground level of day-to-day life in the student body of a major university like Villanova is Mike. And so uh, uh, he's the one who I trust on on that question. And if he says that this is an issue that didn't have the same kind of awareness as a lot of other issues that float around campus, that fact alone, the fact that he's saying that, means that I, I, I care about the question of how much is being talked about on, on a great campus like this. Um, and the second thing, quickly, is um, uh, As important as it is that there was some significant media attention around this attack, I think it's also important to recognize that uh, a lot of LGBT people are the subjects, the targets of violence in Center City on a regular basis. And that what distinguishes them from the victims of this particular attack is that many, many, many of them are people of color. And many, many, many of them are gender-variant or transgender in various ways. Uh, Gender-variant in various ways or transgender. And uh, part of what I think made this attack something that the media was interested in is that the two men who were attacked were a pair of sort of middle-class gay white guys. And the people who attacked them were a bunch of middle-class white graduates of a Catholic high school, which kind kind of has had a narrative attached to it, right? And it's not news when an African American transgender woman gets beaten, uh, but it happens a lot. And so, the there's a story here about the ways in which this attack is not getting the attention it deserves. But there's also a story here about the attention that it did get in comparison to a lot of similar attacks that happen with communities that just don't get the same kind of attention when they're when they're targeted. And I think we need to pay attention to both. Um,
2: just briefly, I now i i don't know all the details of the incident and the backstory of the catholic school and so on i would um hypothesize that in that school nobody ever said you have to go beat up homosexuals it's you know likely but as i said earlier i could well imagine that this cognitive dissonance that's created through the contradictory uh, statements about homosexuality as evil and homosexuals as you know, nice <laughs> persons like we all are, that that could have been part of what triggered the violence in those people. I'm just guessing here. You know, that's potentially a, a contribution of Catholicism to the creation of an atmosphere where violence might come about more easily than in another atmosphere. The other thing is that I, I don't know of any official statements of the, say, the Bishop of Philadelphia on that incident, I don't much doubt that there has been one. On the other hand, there wasn't any official statement on the Ferguson and related incidents either by the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, unfortunately, is um, well known for not speaking up when it would be necessary to speak up, unfortunately, in this incident, as well as in many others. They do, you know, they talk a lot about issues that are maybe a bit further down. (laughs) Priority list, but yeah, there could could have been much more done, certainly.
3: If that is, in fact, a part of someone's party culture, I know with Christine and I's friend groups, it absolutely is not, and we tend to get along and become better friends at the end of the night. But I do know (laughs) in in some instances, especially um, in across the nation, there are some college parties where racism, homophobia, sexism is an endemic part of party culture in certain circles and certain social circles. So I would say that if that is something that you know or that you see, I know it can be very difficult to call someone out, and especially in a group setting, but maybe one-on-one conversations, especially with a friend later on, that's doing something problematic. One-on-one conversations are more likely to have success, especially if you speak to someone as a friend and say, I think this is what you're doing, I don't think it's okay. Because being a friend means that you help your friend become a better person. It doesn't mean you stand by them when they do terrible things. That makes you an enabler, not a friend.
0: Around the racist fraternity incidents and and other sorts of experiences, when behavior that is deemed normal is exposed to the greater communities, all of a sudden the conversation shifts. Um, so if you are a party to those sorts of things, um, let someone know. You know, if you, particularly if you're if you're in a place where you don't feel safe, um, there is. I know on Villanova's website there's a great resource of safe zone trained folks that you can reach out to. Um, so yeah.
5: Yeah, um I just wanted to comment on the importance of language because I remember speaking about some of the Catholic Catholic Church's sins. When we I love when the whole thing about like the sexual abuses within the church was coming along, I've heard many times, and I know I've read it. Many of them had to be gay. That it was like gays, when infiltrated the chur- the ranks of the church, and that that's why they were abusing kids. Like I, I read this mm-hmm. in like things that I had originally considered like more like legitimate sources of information, and I was shocked because first of all, there was no no kind of legitimate, legitimate evidence to that. But it's it's that language that a pedophile is a sexual deviant, and I think we can all agree. I agree with that. The homosexuality and, trans and being transgender is also labeled by people as a deviancy. So it's not its not like, it's not not like a behavior, it's not a, no, no, no. People use that word as a sexual deviancy. And when you have those things together, there's an assumption that, oh, all deviants must be together. And I think that's a danger in language, that as long as that category is there, you can equate it to many things, that that can also like, lead to violence and to a lot of misconceptions, so I like your
6: to engage in in response to that call mm-hmm. for conversation. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering both, I, I mean, not that we can really hypothesize about why, for many reasons probably, but what might, how might we better uh, respond to that invitation as a Catholic institution, especially given what both Mike and Christina noted, you know, mm-hmm. that there are certainly visible Catholic actions opposing, making, acting violently. So mm-hmm. how do we
2: I, again, um, I think the, the problem with the Catholic Church is that it happens on so many different levels. And I think, for example, this event is one moment where we are engaging in a dialogue. Um, when I teach my classes on, on you know, the introductory course to theology, I always include some issues related to gender, homosexuality, and so on. Um, so those would be low level, kind of everyday ways of engaging in dialogue. Um, the issue with Pope Francis is that um, I think he's trying and he probably means it as well, I'm hoping. <laughs> but the Synod uh, on the Philodon Family in, in last October is a good example. They had a couple of paragraphs in the first draft talking about the gifts that homosexuals bring to parishes, acknowledging those gifts. They didn't go any further, but they did acknowledge that, which in itself is, you know, it doesn't go against anything. Doctrine. And the, uh, the majority of the bishops present had those paragraphs scratched. So it's Pope Francis can have a lot of good intentions and, and want to move forward, but there is that heritage of two very conservative popes, the people that are still present in the uh, relevant commissions and committees, and he somehow has to deal with them, and that just <laughs> slows things very much down. <laughs>
1: Can I also just add, and I, I speak not as a member of the Catholic faith, so take this for what it's worth, which may not be very much, but um, I think that the basic principle of gender equality and the basic principle of LGBT equality, when they're not recognized in an institution and in a faith tradition, that that simply has an impact on all other attempts at discourse and engagement. And that's not to say that there's not immense value and importance in engaging in that discourse. But if you're not embodying the principle that the women in this room are equal in their intellectual and spiritual gifts to the men in this room and are just as capable of expounding upon the faith and serving as leaders of congregations, then you're at the wrong starting point with with great respect. And and I think one just needs to never fail to acknowledge that 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 is a structural fact that is going to have an impact on all of these attempts at discourse and engagement. I'll just say, you know, from a practical political standpoint,
0: uh, you know, the the I think people need to understand, too, that the bishops, the same bishops that you're talking to, the same bishops that sit in Philadelphia and all over Pennsylvania, are also calling the shots politically, are also very much calling the shots politically, uh, you know, and, and not to bash Catholics, there are other religious faiths that have lobbyists in Harrisburg, trust me. Uh, you know, but the thing is, uh, the Catholic Conference does have a powerful influence. The Catholic Conference takes its cues from the bishops, and so I think I think the fact that there's conversation going on is incredibly important. I think the fact that the Pope has made some gestures towards the, the LGBT community is incredibly important. But this ain't a democracy. These guys ain't going nowhere anytime fast. And the bottom line is, they're going to continue talking the way they talk because they can't be voted out of office. They I guess they retire after a certain amount of time. But the bottom line is, you know, more people need to do more research onto what it is exactly that these folks are talking about. The average Catholic does not know what's going on in many instances. The average Catholic has no idea what's going on in Harrisburg and the stance that these people are taking. They may hear about it, but they really don't know. And let me tell you, they're pretty tough stuff. I mean, this is pretty tough stuff. They fight everything, and I mean everything, that would put sexual orientation, gender identity, expression, in any law, bullying, non-discrimination, hate crimes, anything. So I mean, I think people need to clearly get that. I think people clearly get that. Uh, And it is a a huge hurdle for them. It is a huge, enormous hurdle for them. And they will continue to fight it as long as they're there and as long as the money keeps flowing. On that note, and I hope I'm not
5: getting too broad here, I do question a lot, and not even, like for different things, not only this, but how much power should a religious institution have on the legal legal ramifications of an entire nation? I really struggle <laughs> with that. And I was raised Catholic, and I'm not talking about any. I, I said any religious institution, be it Judaism, is whoever it is. I do wonder because I see this as human rights issues. I'm not asking the Pope to change the Bible. I am not asking. You to. I'm just asking for people to be able to file their taxes together, to be like simple things that like are paperwork, but they can not fill because someone in another nation, far away nation on the other side of the ocean, is proclaiming certain things. And I really struggle with the power that religious institutions in every in any country can have on the legal ramifications. I don't know. Sorry if it's not too broad, but
1: I would like to hear anything. For real, uh, I mean, I guess what I'll say is this, Uh, you know, people of faith and religious institutions have as much of a right to see their preferred policies get enacted as anybody else. And we have an establishment clause in the United States that says the government cannot align itself with a particular faith tradition. The government can't proclaim the United States to be uh, a Catholic nation, for example, but uh, we also aren't, aren't allowed to, in, and, and mustn't, in my view, uh, take the view that uh, you know, Catholic political positions are somehow unwelcome, because religious belief shouldn't inform political debate. Uh, and so you know, uh, if, we, if we make that distinction, then I think we just need to win the right political fights.
2: I could just add, I'm relatively new to the US, it's my second year here, and I'm practically daily amazed at how much influence, how, how present religion is in the public sphere in a country where supposedly state and religion are separated. In Germany, there's a, it's, Germany is not a Catholic country or something, but for example, uh, taxes are collected by the state on behalf of the, of the churches. So that's cooperation, let's say. And yet, on the political level, the churches have much less influence mm-hmm. in the daily business. So it's something that I'm really amazed. I think um, it would work much better if the relig- all religions probably um, would bring down their positions and their claims to the, to the basis of what they are about. And that is human dignity, the value of each individual in the eyes of God, let's say. And then things like equality of gender, and equality of (coughs) relationships, and so on, should naturally follow and not be an issue anymore. But that's my personal opinion, and the pope doesn't listen to me, either. (laughs) So to to your point that the bishops or the bishops in Pennsylvania are called
5: shops, I mean, they're
4: not getting pushback from congregations. And how how do congregate, why should congregations well, because they, they should interact
5: with us, but they don't. And I think that's the solution, right? If you see that I'm a human being, you know, that I deserve God's dignity and love, just like anyone else, then that's where you get you
0: know, I, I'll, I'll just say, you know, don't be like me. You know, my, I always, my, my husband and I used to go to church all the time. We'd go to Catholic mass all the time until I started kind of acting out like a bad child. You know, the minute the, minute the priest would say something that was anti-gay, I, 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 I'd do this. <sighs> and, and, and 50 rows of pews turned around. And it was embarrassing to my husband, but I just, I had to, I couldn't deal with it anymore. So I left. I, just, I had had enough, and I walked out. You shouldn't, you shouldn't. But as long as you talk back, as long as you stand up, I think, that's the, I think that's the important takeaway. That's the important takeaway. It is, believe me. I can say, too, I've had a similar experience, although I come from the Midwest um, and an extraordinarily
3: conservative parish. So I found that dialogue with Catholics on the East Coast, especially at Villanova, is far more productive and far more open minded than anything I experienced back home. Back home, um, I feel it was just very rigid and closed off and leaving truly was the only option, leaving the church for me. But here it feels like, again, because the Catholic Church is not monolithic, it is very regional and it is devolves into individual parishes and congregations and bishops. And while the leadership as a whole might not face universal pushback, I do believe that there are certain parishes, because many of my friends here that have become very close with me are Catholic. And it is absolutely essential to their faith to be pro-LGBTQ rights. But again, for many other people, my parents included, it is absolutely essential to their faith to deny any kind of progress on it, anything, including like speaking out against bullying of students in schools, because they think, well, the LGBT students deserve it because that's how they are. But again, because the congregation is not model, I think I feel each individual parish and each individual congregation, Catholic, university, and chapel, wherever they are in the country, will have to come to their own decisions. But dialogue is sometimes not only possible, it takes willingness on both sides. And because both sides often feel under attack, in some places that might not be feasible. But in many other places, I think it is.
4: Yeah, and, and I was going to say, too, to your point, and it's Christine's point, is as an ally, I, I think it can be really, really valuable for the allies that are in the pews. You know, to share that sentiment with their pastors or with their parishes, because I think you're right. God, God loves each. I mean, in my view, God loves each one of us, and and the, to me too, the church is the people. It's not really the people in Rome. It's the people in the pews, and we have this power. And so, if if you're an ally who's sitting there and cares, you know, voice that to your pastor and voice that to your parish council or whatever way you're involved in your parish because it's the people with the privilege that often can draw the attention to it from a safer place.
2: Other questions?
5: today, um, just, you know, <laughs> I've got a big mouth. My students would argue, I'm sure. Um, thank you so much. Uh, is there any other final comments you all would like to make, or anybody else?
0: It's been a wonderful panel. I'll, just, okay. make, I'll yeah. just make
1: one final comment, which is that uh, there's lots of different kinds of courage, and uh, it takes lots of different kinds of courage to change people's minds on a one-on-one basis, to change uh, community attitudes, to change policies at the state and local level. Um, One of the most extraordinary forms of courage is being willing to step forward and say, I am one of the people that you're talking about, and I am one of the people who is affected by this, even when it's not 100% safe to do so. And so Um, I don't want to put you on the spot, but can we just end by giving a big round of applause to Mike, who I think really deserves it.
4: And thank you all so much for coming. Thanks for that, again, thank you everybody for coming out to this panel today and for supporting us.